You're listening to Modern Marketing, a podcast brought to you by Influicity. At Influicity, we build brand communities that drive revenue. Learn more at Influicity.com. On today's episode, John Davids and Natalie Litchek host our community event where they will discuss and answer questions all about the secrets of influencer marketing. So Natalie, what is your dirty little secret about influencer marketing? So I would say my dirty little secret is to not be afraid to take risks and let the influencer have free reign when it comes to creating the content. I think it'll definitely come across as more authentic. And usually an audience can tell when an influencer that they've been following for so long is posting inauthentic content and when they're told to post something that they wouldn't usually post or or take copy and put it in the, the description. And they're like, this influencer doesn't talk like that. So don't be afraid to let an influencer have free reign over the content, over the description. If you want to give them a guideline, that's totally fine. But this is what you're paying for the influencer for, right? So don't be afraid to let them have free reign. Yeah. So I've I've got a funny story about that. But I'm curious, do you have examples, either clients you've worked with, or I know you yourself have been an influencer or an influencer. Do you have examples of like extreme times where clients have asked for ridiculous things in your memory? In my personal experience, it's never been anything extreme, but I have had influencer friends who have worked with other brands that I haven't worked with. And they're like, these brands are like literally telling me that I have to copy and paste this caption and I can't add my own thing to it. And essentially what ends up happening is all these influencers who work with the same brand end up having the same caption. And people are like, this is not coming across as authentic. This just seems disingenuous. So people in the end aren't going to want to buy the product, aren't going to trust the influencer, which it just ends up making the campaign be a fail. Yeah. And the bigger problem there is that what you're paying for, you're not getting. I mean, what you want when you work with an influencer is organic reach, organic engagement, mentions, reposts, shares, all that stuff. And you're actually just kind of suffocating the content by neutralizing it and sanitizing it and making it sound like a commercial for your brand. So yeah. it's counterintuitive in that way. So I've got a funny example. True story. Not going to say the name of the client, obviously, but a big women's hygiene brand. They sold tampons. Very big company. And they were working with... We were a client of ours for a long time. Still are. And they had a bunch of influencers and they wanted the influencer, they were spoon feeding her something to say. And it was like, you know, at this time of the month, I have, and it was like really canned, corny copy, like you'd hear in a commercial. Like she danced around the fact that, like, never even said the word tampon. And it was just kind of, kind of a weird sounding copy. And the influencer said, like, there's no way I can say this. This is a joke. Like it's, it sounds like a parody of a bad skit that like I'm supposed to be taking yeah. seriously. And it was just, it was just really, it came off inauthentic. And in the end, it was actually a pretty big back and forth. It was a bit of an arm wrestle. And in the end, we kind of came to some workable conclusion where we gave a bunch to the client against our recommendation. And the whole campaign ended up just falling flat. And it could have been so funny and so cheeky and so interesting and actually created a lot of buzz. But the client was just wanting to spoon feed exactly what to say. And it just didn't work. Yeah. I feel like that's the problem. I feel like just, you know, these are what you bring people to do and they have experience with this. So they know what works. Right. So just put faith in them and trust the process. Yeah. 100%. So my influencer dirty little secret is that influencer and follower fraud 
is a big deal and it, it happens a lot. And there are ways to sort of get around it and make sure it doesn't affect you. And I'll talk about what I mean right now. So follower fraud, there's a few ways to look at it. But people with fake followers... So it says they have 100,000 followers. Really, they don't. Half of those people following are, are bots or you know not interested in some way. It could also be that people are buying likes or buying comments or, or all these sorts of things. And what I want to say about that is that it exists across every platform to some percentage, it's going to be it's going to be there. And so it's not that you necessarily want to look for someone that's got zero fake followers or zero bots or doesn't have any fake likes or any fake comments. But you want to make sure it's not the majority and it's not interfering with the real metrics. So the way that we look at it is depending on the category, depending on the size of the account, and depending how long the account's been around for, we will set an expectation that if you're on Twitter or you're on Instagram or you're on TikTok, a certain percentage of your followers, I'm just making this number up, maybe maybe 10% are going to be bots. And we will put that into our calculations and use it when we're measuring results. And the reason that it's acceptable is because at some point in the growth of an account, once you have tens or hundreds of thousands of followers, it's known that you, in order to get there, there was some paid activity that happened. And this is very true, especially when you have an account that has millions of followers. So if you go to Twitter and look at an account that has you know, 20 million followers, there's a good chance that a few million of them are fake. But that's okay because the other 15 million are real. And so when it comes to follower fraud and the same thing with likes and comments and all this sort of stuff, there is a certain amount that is allowable and acceptable. And it's important because it drives everyone else to take part. Nobody wants to be a, you know, follow an account that's got zero followers. So maybe you buy the first thousand. So the next 10,000 will join you for real. So that's how we think about fake followers. Not that they're a, a terrible thing, but that they need to be accounted for in your calculations and they shouldn't scare you off. Does that make sense, Natalie? Yeah, I would say the same thing. Any big account, especially if you're working for, with a large influencer, there's always going to be some percentage of their followers that are bots. doesn't necessarily mean that they bought them. Sometimes bots just follow. There, there's bot accounts on Instagram literally all the time, like watching my stories. And I'm like, what is this account? So, but I think as long as you do your influencer research and you see that they still have an engaged audience and they connect with the real followers that they do have, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, well put. All right. So let's get to some of the questions here. We have a question from... Get the name here. This is from Conrado. And the question is, how to avoid wasting a ton of money on influencers? So how do we make sure we're spending money on influencers, getting results, and not wasting money? So I'll start off here. And uh, if you want to jump in, Natalie, you can do that. So what I would say is you want to look at influencers and influencer pricing in the same way you look at pricing for any other kind of media. So for example, if you're buying television airtime, or you're buying radio airtime, or you're buying podcast airtime, or Facebook or Google, you're going to use a metric like cost per thousand CPM, or cost per click CPC, or pay-per-click, whatever that metric you're using, cost per lead, etc. And you're going to take that number and put it into some type of formula to say, I will pay this for that. I'll pay X for Y. Certain number of impressions, certain number of clicks. And that comes down to what you as a brand have as your objective. 
if your objective is getting leads in, maybe you're doing a lead-based campaign and you know that you can pay $48 per lead or you can pay $12 per thousand impressions for that exposure. You need to be able to put the influencer into the same type of calculation. So we have a calculation at Ballpark. We will pay $8 to $12 CPM for an influencer's content. And in some categories, maybe that's $25 or $30 in a very, very niche category. And in a very broad category, maybe that's much lower. That's like 2 or $3 cost per thousand. So we know for every impression or view that we get from this influencer, we're going to pay this. Where you get into a problem is when you don't do that calculation and you just say, hey, a video from this person is $4,500. And it's like, well, why? Well, there's no reason. That's just what it costs because their manager said so, their agent said so. That's what their rate card is. That's nonsense. I don't care what your rate card is. I don't care what you're, what you're quoting me. I care what I can pay based on the media effectiveness that I'm getting out of this. So as long as you're looking at it through the same lens as every other media that you're buying, generally speaking, you're going to do okay. And even if the campaign doesn't perform, you can stop it and you can move those dollars around. But I wouldn't call that wasting money. That's just experimentation dollars. What do you think, Natalie? Yeah, I would say the most important thing is to figure out your campaign goals. You need to know these basically right before you select your influencers, right before you even start. It's the first step, I think. And I think that if you want followers, brand awareness, or sales... I would say spend more money on influencers that are going to actually help you achieve that goal. Maybe an influencer with a larger following that's also still connected with their audience, which it can be a little difficult to find both, but it is possible. Um, whereas if you want a different kind of goal, say you just want an authentic audience, maybe someone who is genuinely really connected with their followers and has a really strong community, go for the smaller influencers. Those are obviously going to be a little cheaper, but depending on your goal, a smaller influencer could be the way to go. So I think just figure out your goal. And then from there, figure out if you want to spend more money on the bigger influencers or less money on the smaller influencers. It all just depends on your goal, I would say. I agree. And the objective is sometimes not even accounted for. So we have clients, first-time clients, where it's like, we want to run an influencer marketing campaign. And then we'll say, Okay, great. What are you trying to achieve? Oh, we want reach and we want sales and we want conversation and we want likes and we want account growth. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I want all those things too. I also want a unicorn yeah. and uh, you know a, a genie with a magic lamp. But let's actually focus on what you're trying to achieve right now. And yeah, really exactly. focusing that, that goal. We have a client that uh, we work with Natalie in the apparel side. And you know they're trying to achieve a follower growth on their social. They're also trying to achieve conversions on their website. So actual purchases for the clothing. And we're very careful to say, okay, those are two separate goals. Let's make sure we're not trying to achieve all those goals all at once. Exactly. Exactly. And you have to know who you're looking for when it comes to those goals. You can't look at one influencer with say 5,000 followers and say, Hey, I want you to get me reach. I want you to get, I want you to get me sales. I want you to get me new followers. It's just not going to work like that. So I think depending on the campaign, just figure out your goal and find the right influencers and obviously do a lot of research on that influencer to know that they're the right fit for the campaign. Yeah. Okay. Next question. This is a good one. How would a healthcare company utilize influencer marketing? So influencers in healthcare, pharmaceutical, medical... I'll jump into this one first. So... When it comes to healthcare, I'll just I'll start off by caveating depending on what state or city you're in, 
there might be rules and regulations around what you can and can't advertise. So I'm going to put all, all that aside for a second and just assume that you are able to promote your product. So in terms of, of, how, of how we use influencers in healthcare, in medicine, in wellness, all that kind of stuff, what it really comes down to most of the time, not, not knowing what product in particular that you work on, is starting at the end and working backwards. So we always start off with what is the client or what is the potential customer experiencing? What are the symptoms? What's the lifestyle associated to this? What is the common problems they have? What what do they want to do that they can't do? Maybe they want to lose weight or maybe they want to... Or maybe they, they are worried about having a certain type of surgery or maybe there's an ailment or something. So what is the lifestyle and emotion attached to that? And then how do we work backwards from there to say, who are the people that we can associate to that? Who are the influencers? And then how are they going to tell that story? I think where brands get in trouble is they start with themselves. They start with, here's the product we're selling. Let's go forward from here. Let's let's march onward from here. Well, that's a problem because you're starting from a point where you're trying to serve yourself now. What you need to remember is you, you're serving the audience and you're serving them in, in a way that they digest information. So if you think about it, it's like, what is that person living? What's their truth right now? What's their lifestyle right now? And how do we work backwards to address them? And then at the very, very end, there's a call to action of, hey, here's what we're selling or here's a solution that might work. And so that's how we approach a lot of what I'll call non-traditional influencer clients. You know, it's If you're selling like makeup and food, it's kind of simple what the creative might look like. But if you're selling a certain medication or a surgery or something like that, you need to start with the emotional lifestyle appeal and work backwards from there. What do you think, Natalie? Yeah, I would say this one's a little trickier, obviously, because it's not a fun, flashy product that's being sold. So I would say I would go for two types of influencers. If this were to be an influencer campaign, I would pick someone who has some sort of expertise in healthcare and get them to try out your services in an actual genuine way and get them to talk about their experience. So for example, there's plenty of influencers in the health TikTok world. So get one that's like actually respected. Um, you can do that by looking at comments and seeing if people actually trust this person, right? And get them to try out your product or your service or whatever it is. And then secondly, you also, I feel like need the more casual side to things as well. You need to connect with an influencer that isn't someone that's an expert. You need to have an influencer that's maybe just like one of us and have them experience your product or your service and show their followers what they can expect from your healthcare company as well. So it's the more authentic side, the more, oh, I'm just a regular person. I don't know anything about healthcare. What can I expect to see? Yeah. And I would add to that by saying it's it's actually interesting. You pointed something out, which is the people who are sort of experts or people in the field versus regular people, depending on the on the vibe and the sort of authority you're going for. You know, if you're trying to reach a point of authority, maybe you need the dentist or the doctor or the pharmacist yeah. influencer versus just the patient influencer. Yeah. And I would also say just to stay cautious if if you, I wouldn't get like a regular influencer to promote like a medication, for example. I know a story of like an influencer who promoted a birth control on her story. And she got so much backlash because they're like, you're not a medical expert. Like, why are you recommending medication to us? So I would say, depending on what that product or what that service is, then I would say, then you can go forward and say, hey, am I going to pick an expert or am I going to pick just a regular influencer? Well put. 
All right. This question comes in from Samantha. It's a good one. Does the size of the influencer's account matter? Does reach matter? And how does it affect the campaign? Why don't you take this one first? Sure. So I would say yes and no. Again, it depends on your campaign goals. So if you want sales, then I would say go for the bigger influencers. But if you want to create a genuine engaged community, if you want loyal customers, you can definitely go for a smaller influencer. The different sized influencers accomplish different things. So for example, larger influencers aren't as connected with their audience as smaller influencers, especially if this large follower takes sponsorships from just about anyone. If you collaborated with an influencer that will promote basically anything for money, it likely isn't going to get you the results that you want or you need. So I would say in some instances, it can be better to go for smaller influencers, especially if you have a small tight budget as they're going to be able to create an authentic pitch and an authentic sale in a way that a larger creator might not be able to. Yeah, I would add that this is so category dependent. And what I like to say is, you know, depending on what you're selling... So everything you said about large influencers not having direct necessarily connections with their audience versus the smaller ones. But then it also comes down to what what vertical are you in? So in a category like where we play very heavy in B2B marketing or let's say a very particular niche like education institutions or companies that sell equipment for the fishing and farming industries. When you get into those niches, it doesn't really matter that somebody has 100,000 followers. What matters is how many of those people are actually qualified buyers for this product. And in that respect, you could do very well working with an influencer that reaches 5,000 people. If those 5,000 people are qualified inside your ICP, your ideal customer profile. So thinking about your category first and then going down. Now, where you do need to go for the reach is when you're selling a consumer packaged good to everybody. You know, you need national reach. Like when we work with the Unilevers and Procter and Gamble's of the world, of course, they need to reach everybody all the time because 92% of the population uses their products. So that's a different story versus, like I said, if you're selling farming equipment and you're looking to reach people that own farms, well, that's a much, much smaller demographic and population. So depending on the category you're in, size does not always equal better. I would not want to work with a very big influencer promoting something that that's quite niche. Anything you want to add to that, Natalie? No, I think that's like, yeah, exactly like you said. Like, you wouldn't want to work with someone who has a huge following but has nothing to do with your niche. So, yeah, I would say the same thing. Like, if they have 5,000 followers who are actually going to convert, then I think that's the most important. Yeah. Let me ask you this Do you notice differences across different platforms? So, like, let's take TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. Let's take those three. Does size differ on those platforms? Like, is a big influencer on TikTok? less valuable than a big influencer on Instagram? Do the numbers differ? I think I would say on TikTok, it matters more about the actual views and the engagement, which is it's the same on Instagram. Obviously, engagement does matter. But I've noticed that on TikTok, brands are more willing to work with influencers who have a smaller following, but get a lot of views. So definitely your actual content and the quality of the content definitely matters more on TikTok, I would say. And so what I've heard, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, what I've heard is like every follower on TikTok is worth... Every three followers on TikTok is like one on Instagram. Like They're just less valuable. So if you have 100,000 followers on Instagram and 300,000 followers on TikTok, 
that's like equal. Does that make sense? I get what you're saying. I don't know if I would agree because there has been a huge shift from Instagram to TikTok since Instagram has kind of been neglecting the photo side of the app now. And they're obviously shifting towards reels. A lot of people feel that neglect. So I feel like a lot of people are shifting to TikTok. A lot of people like TikTok better. A lot of people, a lot of influencers are even moving towards posting more consistently on TikTok than on Instagram. So even if it's not the case now, I feel like TikTok will have more value than Instagram eventually. That's interesting. And and you're right. The stat that I'm that that thing I just told you, that was probably from about six months ago. So I think it has there's been a very rapid shift. I actually think the last thing you said is interesting too. The fact that you actually think that a TikTok audience in a year or two from now will be more valuable than an Instagram audience in a year or two from now. Is that is that right? Yeah, I believe so. Especially since it's becoming much more difficult to grow on TikTok. I would say maybe if you asked me this in 2020 when TikTok was blowing up, I would say maybe not because anyone can blow up on TikTok, right? They're pushing out every and any content. It doesn't matter the quality. But now it's much more difficult to grow on TikTok since it's so oversaturated with content and with influencers. So I think that's only going to get worse in the sense that it's going to be keeping, it's going to be harder to grow. So yeah, I think TikTok will just be more and more valuable as the time goes on. Yeah, Yeah. worse in one sense and better in the other sense that there's more of a filter on who gets big. Exactly, exactly. Okay, this question comes in from Jacob. It's a good one. So Jacob is asking, what are the most impactful uses of influencer content you've seen outside of the social feeds? So let me take this one first because I have, a, I think, a good answer. And you might have the same answer as me, Natalie. But the use of influencers that we've been using for probably 3 years now, and we're still doing it, and some people have started to catch on, but we're still kind of ahead of the pack here, is podcasts. So using influencers as podcasts hosts is a really, really effective thing to do for a few reasons. A, they're media trained. And they might be self-trained, but they sort of know how to talk. They know how to carry a conversation. They know how to capture attention really quickly, especially if they're on a platform like TikTok or Instagram, where you only have a few seconds or one second to catch attention. So they know how to capture attention and be interesting. Number two, they have a built-in following. So they have an audience that will follow them from one platform to another, which helps a lot. And three they have a niche that they know a lot about. And so if you're putting them in a place and in a scenario where they're able to talk about the thing that they know about, it's just very natural for them. If they already do YouTube videos and and Instagram posts on, let's say, recipes or on fashion trends or what have you, they can do that on a podcast in a really effective way. This podcast is brought to you by Influicity. Since 2015, we've been building brand communities that drive revenue. First, we did it through influencers. Then we added podcasts. Today, we work with world-class brands to build, optimize, and run breakthrough programs that create and capture demand. It's time to stop renting your influence and start owning it. Learn more at Influicity.com. So the transition of influencers from social to podcast is something that makes a lot of sense. And then the other one I would give is taking them into your environment. And so I don't recommend this on day one because I think it's always better to just go where the audience is rather than try to take the audience to you. So I recommend brands try to be native in the influencer channels, You know, give the product to the influencer, let them use it in their channel because that's where their audience is. After you develop a relationship with an influencer though, 
taking them and bringing them into your brand, either as your spokesperson or someone who does takeovers on your social feeds or something like that can really play nicely. Because again, for all the same reasons, they're proven in the category. They know how to hold attention. They know how to grow an audience. And they have an audience that they can bring over. So those are a couple of ways I would use influencers outside of, of their socials. What do you think, Natalie? Yeah. I mean, you made a really great point. I think podcasts are a great way to do it. I also think now with the growth of the influencer marketing, I feel like brands don't even have to create their own website content anymore. And I feel like this is a great thing. If you find yourself busy, if, if your brand is maybe your side hustle, then you feel like you don't have time to create your own, to go rent a studio to get the perfect lighting and get the expensive camera to get a shot of the product or whatever it is you're selling. Now you can literally just pay influencers to do all the dirty work for you. So I feel like a lot of influencers are, I've noticed on websites that I'm shopping, it'll be like majority influencer content, or maybe it's user generated content, whatever the case may be. But I'm noticing a shift of brands no longer taking their own professional studio content. And now it's a lot of the time just influencer content. And it doesn't even have to be for social media anymore, just for the website. It's so true. We were doing three years ago, we did a photo shoot for a fashion brand. And it was the content was being used for social media for Instagram at the time, as well as their catalog. And I'm sure it went on their website too. And so it was like one photo shoot serving three purposes. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Samantha has a question here live. For influencers who do not have a pricing menu, how do you go about figuring out what to pay them? So pricing is like almost always the number one question clients have about influencers. So I'll take a stab at this one first. So influencers pricing menu, I honestly don't care what their pricing menu says if they have one. I guess the only reason you would care is to see if they're if you're going to have to really, really negotiate hard or if you're in the same ballpark. But from a pricing standpoint, the influencer will say whatever they want to say or their manager or agent will say it. And sometimes, by the way, it's inflated. So they know they're going to get $2,000, but they ask for six. So what their pricing menu is, let's put that aside because it doesn't really matter. We look at a formula of what they're worth on a CPM basis. And I already talked about this a minute ago, so I won't, I won't say the whole thing again. But just to go a little deeper on the how side, we're looking at what are we paying for media across the rest of our media mix? Television, Facebook, Google, Linear, whatever that looks like. And then how does influencer fit in? Now, I'm not saying that it's going to be the exact same CPM because the influencer might be more effective or less effective. So you've also got to see how does this measure against my final objective, which is, let's say, selling a product or booking a meeting in the case of B2B. So looking at it through the lens of what you pay everybody else, every other media vendor, and then putting the influencer in that same bucket is how you do it. Now, in all honesty, it's a lot harder than it sounds because it's a lot of math and a lot of spreadsheets and a lot of R&D. We've been doing this for 8 years. So for us, it's like rinse and repeat. But if you're just starting out, make an investment and be willing to get it wrong a few times, honestly. like Be willing to overpay here and there to figure out, oh, you know what? I thought we were overpaying, but we actually got great results out of this person. So let's let's keep going with them. We've seen examples. There's one company. I won't say what they're called, but it's a meal delivery company. And they are notorious for 
I shouldn't say they're notorious, but they tend to sort of underpay. And what happened was they approached us and we brought them an influencer. And we noticed that with one particular influencer, they were willing to pay much, much higher prices. And it was like everybody else, they were giving a hard time to know we got to pay this person less, that person less. But this one influencer, they were willing to pay a lot more to. And we said to them in a meeting, we're like, why are you willing to pay this person that but this person that they have the same following pretty much. And the answer was the conversion on this particular influencer for whatever reason was so high that it didn't matter that they were paying a higher than usual CPM. Their conversion was just much better. So you've got to be willing to do some R&D to figure out what actually works for you. Anything you want to add on pricing, Natalie? Yeah, I would say there's also a lot of tools online that can kind of show you an estimate of what an influencer can charge based on their engagement rate and their follower number. So I feel like you can do a little bit of research on that so you can get kind of an estimate. It's not going to be exact, but it can give you a good number. And I'd also say once you have your budget figured out, reach out to more influencers than you expect to work with and see which ones are willing to work with you within that budget. If they don't want to work with you, then that's fine. You have all these other influencers you reached out to. So I would say those are my two biggest tips. That last one you said, by the way, is is so important. So we always, when running influencer campaigns, will over-suggest the influencers. You know this because you've, you've done it many times. So it's like, if you want, if you need 5 influencers for a campaign, find 15 or 20 so that when you narrow it down, this person's not available, that guy's too expensive, this person has a conflict. You never want to be in a situation where you actually need to work with one particular influencer. You're putting all your eggs in one basket. Never want to be there. Exactly. Okay. Question here from Riza. What KPIs in influencer initiatives reflect sales outcomes? So let me just get that again. So what KPIs in influencer initiatives reflect sales outcomes? So if your goal is selling sales, everyone's ultimate goal is sales. But if your immediate goal is sales, what KPIs should you be looking for? I mean, I would say their engagement is really, really important. You want to make sure that the content you're putting out there on the influencer channels is actually being received. And that's not just impressions, but that's how many people are liking and commenting on this. And again, it's not about size. It doesn't matter if the influencer has 100,000 followers or 5,000 followers. Either can work as long as the audience is very engaged. And the other thing I would look for from a sales outcome is honestly, I would try to achieve consumption before I achieve conversion. So everybody wants to start off and say, okay, we're going to, you know, our goal from day one is selling. The reality is that's a very, very hard goal to achieve immediately before you've built trust. So it's like, do people know you? Then do they like you? Then do they trust you? And those are the first three things, know, like, and trust. And then will they buy from you? So when we're running TikTok activations, which are ongoing you know, for months and years at a time, it's the first thing is consumption. Like, Can we build a community that's consuming content here, that's interested in the content? And then after 3 or 6 months, can we start putting some sales messaging in? If you put sales messaging in at the front, not only is it probably not going to work, but you're going to cannibalize the success that you would otherwise have had you just started with, with trying to build you know, having them know, like, and trust you. So that's what I would say for sales as a, as a KPI at the beginning. Anything you want to add, Natalie? Yeah, I would just say in terms of sales, I think website clicks or link clicks and stories are are the key to kind of track that metric. And in addition to using that, I would say you can also use a unique coupon code. 
for the influencer and it allows you to track the sales made from a specific collaboration. So if you're working with five influencers, have five unique codes for each person, and that can kind of help you determine what sales were made from this collaboration. If this is a person you want to work with again, if it was a successful campaign, et cetera. Question here about engagement pods. Are you familiar with engagement pods, Natalie? I do know what they are. Yeah. Okay. So I've got some thoughts on this. So the question is, how do you identify creators who are in engagement pods? So why don't we start off by saying what an engagement pod is and then how you identify it? Sure. So an engagement pod is essentially a group of people, maybe say this is on Instagram. It's a group of people who maybe are on the same DM group. So say there's like 15 influencers and they're all in like a group chat on Instagram DMs. And whenever each one of them posts, they send the post to the group chat and they say, Hey guys, just posted. Like, can you interact with my post? Can you comment, save, share, whatever it may be? And people basically do this to spark their engagement on their post. In terms of actually identifying if someone uses this, John, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's, there's not like an authentic 100% way to know if someone does this for sure, because usually engagement pods are full of real people. They're not bots. Right. Right. So I feel like it's tricky to distinguish who actually is this person's friend versus who's just a person that's part of a pod and they're being told, Hey, comment on my photo. So I feel like you'll never know hundred percent, but I feel like if that is something you're worried about, I would say look for comments that seem like genuinely in- interested in that person and what they're saying in their life and maybe about a product they're selling. So I feel like as long as people seem genuinely interested in the influencer in their life, then I feel like that would be an influencer I would want to work with. I've had mixed feelings about engagement pods. I-, I used to not like them. Now I really do like them. So what you said, everything is exactly right. I mean, you don't know. You can look and see if people are following and liking and you know pretty much doing the same thing every single time. My audience on LinkedIn, I've never used an engagement pod, but I get a lot of the same people liking every single post because they're fans. And I get yeah. asked to be in engagement pods all the time. I just I've never done it, but I'm not against them. And the reason is because being in an engagement pod means that you're taking what you do seriously. So some people, the, the negative slant on it is like, oh, you're cheating because you're asking people for likes. And it's like, everybody asks people for likes. These guys are just doing it better. Like every piece of content I put out there, I'm saying like, follow, share, subscribe, right? Tell your yeah. friends. So yeah, it's not exactly. like, yeah, it's not like it's underhanded. All you're doing here is going the extra mile, taking the time to find people that are genuinely aligned with your category. They probably have a similar audience. They probably have similar interests. And you're saying, Hey guys, share this and I'll share that for you. You could say the downside is that particular like or that particular comment is not valuable because they may or may not have been interested. Okay, fine. But by commenting, they expose this piece of content to 100,000 more people. And that's a good thing. So I'm actually not against engagement pods at all. And that that's kind of my answer. As for the question, how do you know if they're in an engagement pod? I suppose you could ask them. I would tell you if I was, or I, I don't. I don't think it's that big of a secret. Yeah, I would just add on to that. That I, yeah, kind of like you said. I think like how you mentioned earlier, how a person can buy a thousand bot followers just to get people kind of to initiate them to follow. Right. I feel like engagement pods can be kind of the same thing. You get a group of 15 other influencers to comment on your photo and it encourages other people to follow you and also comment because you know all these other people are 
are following and commenting on this person, like they must be valuable, right? So it creates that kind of image and makes people want to follow that person. And also the engagement on the post does push it out more. That's kind of just how the algorithm works. So yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a bad thing because the post or whatever it is will be pushed out if there are people engaging with it at the end of the day. One of the things you said there is is really important. And that's the people that are in the engagement pod, assuming they all have good, strong, healthy audiences, they're going to be filters for themselves also. They're not going to be in an engagement pod with people that are of lower quality. So exactly. it's it's actually... It could be a plus in that, in that respect. Yeah. And just to add to that, I think a lot of the time too, people are engagement pods. Maybe not all the time, but I feel like people are in, in engagement pods with people who post similar content to them or someone that they would like to follow. Because obviously, you have to follow these people and engage with them. So if you're doing a sponsored post with this person and some of the people interacting are part of engagement pod, if they're in the same niche as the influencer you're working with, they too could also be interested in that product. So you are still at the end of the day, exposing the product to real authentic people. And I think that's what matters most at the end of the day. Next question from Jessica. What are the first steps in taking an influencer initiative? So how do we get started if we're not if we're a brand that's not doing influencer marketing? First thing I would do is start like, you know, step 1, identify what your campaign goals are, what your objectives are, marketing objectives. Then I would identify a short list of influencers or a long list of influencers that you might want to work with. And I would really take baby steps into try doing organic stuff first before paying. So I mean, step one, depending on the product you're selling and, and who you're selling it to, you could try sending out product to influencers, seeing who responds, seeing who likes your product, seeing if they actually post it, what the response is. So I would take some baby steps first. What I would say though, for anybody starting influencer marketing fresh who doesn't have a legacy of doing it and doing it wrong, influencer marketing is best done on a continual basis. So one of the big problems being in this business for 8, eight years now, one of the problems I've seen over the years is brands will look at influencer marketing like campaigns. So it's like start, stop, start, stop. And every time you're doing it, it's like you're starting from scratch again. It's much more effective if you think about the influencer as a continuous spokesperson for your brand that you are working with, not for 6 weeks at a time, but hopefully for 6 months, 12 months, 24, 36 months, so that your your product is being exposed to their audience continually over and over and over again. Maybe they talk about it once and then again and again and again. And by the sixth time, their following starts to really get engaged. And now you've got some people that are becoming advocates and customers of yours. So that's what I would say is the biggest thing I would focus on. It's a long-term brand strategic effort. It's not a campaign like you're running a Google ad for 3 days. What do you think? Yeah, I would say there's three key things if you want to start an influencer campaign. And that would be one that kind of like you said, determine your budget, your audience, and your goals. This will help you pick the perfect influencer for this campaign. And then secondly, I would say choose the best platform that fits your campaign. Say if you want to target Gen Z, I obviously wouldn't do a Facebook campaign. I would do maybe TikTok. But if you are targeting an older audience, maybe go for Facebook and not for TikTok. And then thirdly, I would create some sort of outline. You can show the influencer all the details of the campaign, such as payment, what kind of content you expect for them, inspiration, hashtags. And at this point, I would also create a contract. And you can ask the influencer to send over content before it's published. And then if, if you trust their content and you like their content, then I would say like you don't even have to ask them 
to send it over. You could just have them, Hey, like, I'd like your content, go for it, publish it. I think this creates a really good relationship between an influencer and a brand because it just creates that kind of trust. And you give, like I mentioned earlier, the influencer, all the free reign. So yeah, there's number three, just basically create an outline, show them what you want done, and then they can do it. All right. Let's go down to a question from Jennifer. So the question is, what is the key trait of an influencer who delivers the strongest ROI to brands? So let's talk about ROI here. The first thing I would say about ROI is you have to figure out what exactly are you trying to achieve. And I would try to say one thing versus three things. Because when you have too much of an objective, you're diluting all of them. So think about what is what are you actually trying to get a return on? Are you trying to get a return on the exposure of your content? Are you trying to get a return on selling products, selling a certain amount of, of revenue that's commensurate with your expense for that campaign, like a performance marketing type thing? So what are you actually trying to achieve? And then as we said before, it's about aligning the what the influencer is doing to that particular objective. So depending on what you're trying to do, you want to make sure that you're giving the influencer the freedom to do it. I'll give you an example. Going back to what I mentioned at the beginning, if you want to drive organic engagement, you really want to stay as hands-off as you can on what the influencer is doing. Say, listen, you know your audience. You know what they like, what they're what they're into. You take my product and use it however you want. And that influencer, more likely than not, is going to think of a way to get tons of engagement on your product. And that would be great because you're going to get a great ROI on the engagement. If you're trying to drive sales and revenue immediately on day one, Maybe it's a whole different strategy. Maybe at that point, you create an influencer affiliate group and you say, Hey guys, I'm going to send all of you my product and a discount code and whatever, and I'll pay you X dollars for all the people, all the sales that you send me. And at that point, I actually don't even care if you mention my product. Just say, This video is brought to you by this. Click here to get it because that's how I get paid. That's how I'm funded. So it's very different depending on what the objective is. But measuring ROI from the very beginning is important because that's the only way you're going to know if influencer marketing is working for your brand. Any thoughts on on ROI, Natalie? Yeah, I would say you made a lot of really good points. I would say, yeah, like you really have to look at what your goals are. But I would say in general, there's three most important traits to look for in an influencer. And that would be obviously good engagement. You want to make sure they they don't just have a high following, but people are actually commenting and engaging with their content, asking questions, and sparking interest in other sponsorships that they've had before. I would say, secondly, trustworthy influencers. So scroll through their content and look at comments. Um, and that'll show you people are actually interested in what they're selling, if people take their, their word as valuable, and if this person has sparked interest in past collaborations. And then thirdly, I would say look for influencers who have worked with the same brand multiple times, because this obviously means the influencer campaign was good enough for brands to want to come back for more. And again, if you want to track this metric to see if the influencer is worth working with in the future, you can get their analytics before the campaign. And you can also give them a unique coupon code to use for their followers to track this data further. I like that last point, actually making sure that they work with the same brand repeatedly, because that shows that they've done a good job. Yeah, exactly. Last question here. This comes from Okan. So what are the future trends of influencer marketing? What do we think is going to be around, say, a year from now? What, what are we going to be talking about in 2024? I'll let you take this one first. 
Sure. So influencer marketing, I think always kind of have its own unique place and it's always going to be a form of marketing that can only basically be achieved with influencers, obviously, right? Like it's a very unique and special form of marketing. However, I've been seeing this big shift and maybe other people have as well towards user generated content. And that's kind of a new trend that we're seeing in marketing. And a lot of brands are hopping on this trend and kind of maybe shifting away from influencers, maybe if they have a lower budget. So user generated content is essentially original brand specific content created by customers, regular people, not influencers, and it's published on social media by brands. So you're essentially paying regular people to make genuine content about your brand for you to repost on your socials. And I think this is a great way to get content that seems more authentic for your social media. And it it's a much more cheaper alternative to regular influencer marketing, but it still has that really authentic, like I'm a person just talking to this audience, talking to the followers. So it's a really great alternative for people. And it's really blown up in the last few months. That's a really good point. I'll expand on that. The consumer sentiment, what consumers want is they want to see real use cases in the real world. We've moved away from an era where everything's polished and untouchable and and so high touch that I can't relate to it. That was you know the advertising of the 90s and the 80s and, and all the time before that. Nowadays, what's really interesting is you go to Instagram and you see real people in real environments and they're using the product. The other big thing, though, it's not just what consumer sentiment is. It's the fact that we all have one of these in our pockets and we're all able to take super high quality photos and videos all the time. So there was I was with a client a couple of days ago and they were showing me their Instagram feed. It's a new client. And I was looking at their Instagram. I said, this stuff looks looks amazing. Who does your photography? And they said, it's all user-generated content. Our users have cameras in their pockets. They are, you know, really, really they love our product. They use it a lot. And it was interesting to see that they were using UGC in place of professionally taken photography. And it looked really good. It looked really real. And that that's an important word, real, authentic not in a studio, but in the real world. And I actually do think that as we look at the platforms that are big now, Be Real, it's in the name, you know, Be Real, as well as TikTok and, and the other platforms that are coming about, there really is a movement towards real, authentic content. And that extends not just in our world, what we're you know playing with, but in the advertising that we see as well. So I, I would agree with you on that. I think UGC yeah. is where brands are going to be at. Yeah, I think, yeah, like influencer marketing will always have its special place just because it has a reach that UGC can never attain, I think. But a lot of people are shifting towards UGC and I think it's only going to grow. But what, you know, what about the idea, Natalie, of UGC, of, of influencer content almost replacing, quote unquote, ads? So in other words, you'll still run ads, you'll still pay to run your advertising, but the creative will be something that was created either by a real person or an influencer. Is that what you see also? Yeah, a hundred percent. I basically on my TikTok, while I do see like the regular typical ads that you can think of, I only see those types of ads from really big brands like Nike. When it's like a smaller brand or like a fashion brand or whatever it may be, I see a lot of the time it's just like a regular person. It looks like they set up on their phone on a tripod and they're just talking and it's an ad. And I feel like it kind of creates the more humanization and the more personalization that a big ad would never achieve. So I'm seeing a lot of brands shift towards that. 
And isn't it interesting also how many brands are rising now that are influencer anchored brands? I'm thinking about Mr. Beast and I'm thinking about Nelk Boys and of course, Kylie and uh, Kim Kardashian and all these types of influencer-led brands. It's always about the personality and the yeah. fact that the audience feels a connection versus... Exactly as you said, a Nike or a Starbucks or Adidas, where it's not like, I have no relationship to this cup of coffee. I think the next Starbucks will be a person who launches their coffee chain. Yeah. It's like if Nike has an ad about like the best running shoes to go on a jog in, I'm like, I don't jog. I don't care about that. But if if they create a, a really like a person sits down and they're like, OMG, I love these shoes. They're the perfect thing for this outfit. I would actually be interested, right? So having a variety of really personalized ads like that, whether it be UGC or influencers, I think is the key to connecting with your your ideal audience. Thanks for listening to Modern Marketing. This podcast is brought to you by Influicity, empowering marketers to build customer communities that drive revenue. We create massive demand via social, influencer, content, paid media, and of course, podcast. Learn more at influicity.com.